Hello, everybody, and welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Epen, and I'm your host today. I'm a developer here at SmartLogic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile applications since 2005. Our first series covers Elixir in production, and today I'm joined by Dan Ivovich and Eric Ostrich. They are a couple of developers here at SmartLogic that do our, the bulk of our uh, production development environment work. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Dan, why don't you get us started? Hi, thanks. Uh, yeah, my name is Dan Ivovich. I'm the director of development here at SmartLogic. I've uh, been here almost eight years and um, was kind of part of the decision to move to Elixir a couple of years ago, and I'm happy to be here. And Eric? Uh, hey, I'm Eric Ostrich. I'm a developer here, uh, and I am, I guess, the the lead Elixir person, I guess you could say. <laughs> I think that's fair. Great. And I am also a developer here, so we've got a, a great episode coming to you from SmartLogic today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Elixir in production. Dan, I want to start with you. If you could maybe give us a quick overview of the projects that we have in production here. Sure. Um, you know, I'd say for the last... 18 to 24 months or so, almost all of our new API and web-based work has been using Elixir and Phoenix. Um, we do a lot of mobile applications, and most of their APIs now are powered by Elixir. Um, we've got e-commerce ticketing systems in uh, Elixir. We've got um, you know, other kinds of, well, mostly a lot of uh, commerce-related things, um, you know, data processing, uh, Postgres databases, you know, kind of a, an interesting a mix of, of technology all working together in Elixir. Mm-hmm. And Eric, can you talk a little bit about why you're using, we are using Elixir in production? Like, what are some of the high-level advantages and uh, maybe even disadvantages uh, from your perspective? Uh, yes. Uh, we had a developer who was generally interested in, in functional programming and uh, wanted to take a look around Elixir. Um, and then we just kind of really liked how quick or how fast Elixir is and, and Phoenix and all of that got suckered in with that um, and fell in love with the language and all of OTP and all the, the nice features you just kind of get with it. Why I'd say we're using uh, Elixir. Great. And we might dive into some of the things that you just mentioned as far as like OTP, et cetera, is concerned. But I want to go back to Dan, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, the hosting environment that we're using so people can get like sort of a very good high-level idea of what we're doing here. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, where we host our Elixir applications? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I would say we kind of started in our, our default, at least for spinning up a quick staging environment, is uh, Heroku. Um, you know, we were traditionally a Ruby on Rails shop for, you know, over the last eight years. And, uh, you know, our familiarity with Heroku is uh, pretty strong and it offers a lot of really convenient uh, and, you know, well-encapsulated services in, under one roof. Um, so we certainly have uh, started there and have some production things running there, especially things that we don't need, some of the really low-level you know, Phoenix and uh, Elixir OTP networking uh, node-to-node communication for. Um, and then some of our larger things are deployed. Uh, we've done things in Linode, DigitalOcean, uh, and of course, AWS. 
Mm-hmm. And when we're going to say AWS, Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about me, the the deployment process that we have here, whatever tools we use, deployment scripts, that sort of thing? We use Ansible to set up all of our the underlying like uh, VPSs and, and servers. And we've also started switching to use Ansible to do the actual deployment as well. Um, we have it set up to be very similar to how Capistrano, Capistrano rather, <laughs> Uh, does the deployment where there's like a versions folder and then a current that gets symlinked to whatever the the most recent release is. So we're not fully util- we're not fully utilizing the benefits of OTP releases and whatnot, but this is a, a good stepping stone um, that is like proven to work. So that's what we've we've landed on currently. Um, we use Distillery two po- uh, Distillery. I'm not sure a lot of our apps are on 2.0 yet. Yeah. And maybe for someone who is totally new to this, could you give me a definition of Ansible and, and Distillery uh, for someone, let's say, just like a like a junior developer? Uh, yeah, so Ansible is a tool that is like a it's a known set of scripts. They call it a playbook in their terminology that will always set up the server the same way, um, and it's also idempotent. So if that step has already run, it has a way of knowing that that step ran and then skipping it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a way to, to like always guarantee that your server looks the same as it should. So you can you can turn on the EC2 instance, uh, install Python, this is the one small manual step you have to do, um, unless Python's already there, and then Ansible connects via SSH and then just starts running the, the commands that you tell it to, and then at the end of the run, you have a known configured server. Mm. Uh, and so the same goes with deploying your actual application. Um, this one is slightly less idempotent because it's kind of always going to do something because you're telling it to deploy. So we have it download uh, our latest Git ref, install all the dependencies, install Node, bundle all the assets, um, compile all of the packages and the application itself, and then run the mix release, which is the distillery release that then bundles it all together, including our Lang into a single tarball, which we then copy out into a, a, a release version folder, and then resim link, restart the application through systemd, um, and then, boof, we have a, our newly deployed application. That's really helpful. And you mentioned in the first part of that that it's analogous to Capistrano, uh, which we use in some of our older like Ruby on Rails environments, right? Yep. Okay. And, and and if you could maybe also give us like that high level overview for distillery, because you know if you're if you're a junior developer, you might not know what that is. Yeah, distillery is the uh, I think that the current idea behind it is that it's going to be the like the bleeding edge of of where Elixir is headed for deployments. It bundles up what's called an OTP release, which is a pretty old idea through Erlang. Um, that kind of puts together everything you need for Erlang, uh, the, the Erlang runtime system, ET, ERTS, I think. All of the packages that you've installed that get compiled down to the Beam files. So all, all of that is bundled up into a single tarball uh, that you can copy and paste somewhere. <clears throat> and once you unzip it, or I guess untar it, you have a full system that you can just turn on and assuming... You have the correct configuration, 
uh, it'll just connect and like be a full running Elixir, Elixir Erlang application. Okay. Um, and is that distillery process that you just described happening within your Ansible playbook? Uh, it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that okay that really clears it up. Um, I want to go over to Dan talking a little bit more about deployments. Um, what? How are we able to get zero downtime deployments at SmartLogic, Dan? Well, as Eric mentioned, we're not really doing a whole lot with uh, OTP releases and hot upgrades in, in that regard. Um, you know, we're building those releases, but we're kind of doing a hard restart uh, every time. And so for right now, we're mostly getting to those zero downtime uh, updates just by using load balancers and uh, rolling restarts across uh, a fleet of nodes. Okay. And... How are these applications that we are deploying, how are they performing, Dan, compared to other applications that we have in production? Uh, well, they're performing great. Um, you know, traditionally, we would you know, see a lot of memory leaks over time or just um, you know, with Ruby, you know, when we're processing large JSON objects or doing a lot of API work, you know, there's a good chance that you'll allocate some memory and maybe never quite get it all the way back. And so often you know, we've felt RAM constrained uh, in, in many systems as opposed to CPU constrained. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing that I've noticed with our pro- production Elixir applications is just memory utilization is flat and low. Um, and kind of no matter what we throw at it, it stays really, really low. Um, we're also seeing just like phenomenal response times. Um, mm-hmm. If you've ever booted up Phoenix and kind of messed around with it, you'll see, you know, microsecond response times instead of millisecond response times. And yeah, I mean, that's fine for like local things. And, you know, once you get into the real world, you know, things start to creep up, but they're definitely still much faster than some of our uh, previous development efforts. Mm-hmm. And Eric, maybe you could dive a little bit into uh, like application architecture, especially uh, as far as like clustering is concerned, multi-node, uh, you're kind of the expert in that. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, clustering applications? Uh, yeah, let's just clarify, Clust- uh, the, the expert in clustering is smart logic. <laughs> there's, there's definitely a, uh, forever to learn uh, going forward with that, but yeah. So I've done a, a bit with clustering. Um, I gave a talk at ElixirConf this year, um, which we can leave in the, the show notes called Going Multi-Node. Um, that dealt with libcluster and figuring out different parts of OTP that are set up to deal with the, the clustering for you. So libcluster just kind of connects all of your nodes, and then once you're connected, you you fall back to OTP at that point. So there's libraries like uh, PG2, which is process groups. You register a name, say I'm in it, and then you can get all the members and kind of broadcast messages around to all of the members. And uh, there's other tools like Amnesia, if you want to distribute a database. There's lots of gotchas around that, so make sure that's what you you know you want that. But yeah, it's mostly uh, process group stuff and just sending messages to, to PIDs because Erlang is great, and as long as you have a PID, you can send a message to it anywhere in the cluster. So, mm-hmm. And maybe you could reduce it even further for me so that I could understand, like, what is the... Why, what is exactly is clustering? Like, why is it, why is it valuable to know, and why, why is it being easy in Erlang important for us? So, specifically what I'm talking about is... Uh, Erlang ships with the distributed uh, protocol, I guess. So you, you can connect two Erlang nodes together, um, and then once they're connected, they are effectively one system. There's still a lot that 
can that is set up to deal with specifically one node. Um, so that that is a like if you're using the Elixir registry, that is specifically for that local node. It's not a global thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few uh, libraries out there that have that have kind of spun up within the last year or two. One's called Swarm. One's called Horde. That that help dealing with spanning the whole cluster um, in terms of a registry. Right. So once your nodes are connected, like it's effectively a single system as far as processes are concerned, right? So you can just send a message to any PID. Um, but the reason we want this, right? The the, the real question there mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is that if a single node goes down, uh, you can construct your application so that the other node or nodes in the system then notice that that died and then act on it, mm-hmm. right? So I have a, a side project that uh, is called XVenture. That's a, the project I show in the the talk previously mentioned. Um, so that you can spin up with three nodes. Uh, if one node dies, the rest of the cluster notices and says, oh, everything that was on that node now gets spun up between the two nodes that are remaining. And then within a second or two, um, depending on how fast things go, then it's as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. And the, the, we just continue on. If the, the other node comes back up online, it rejoins the cluster, um, and you can push everything back out across it. So then you're, you're like, it dropped and came back into the same cluster, and no one is the wiser. Uh, effectively. So I just want to I want to try to like sum this up here because I'm about to segue into a, another question that's sort of related. But, but what we're talking when you're talking about nodes, you're talking about s- servers, right? That are running the same application, and so they're able to do yep. this creates redundancies in the system, and it's able to. Yep. Okay, um, so th- that's really interesting at the like highest level of, of abstraction. But then uh, if you come down to the application level on a single machine, uh, the, the question I think you know what I'm going to ask here is about uh, like background tasks and. Cons- concurrency uh, at the level of a single node. Can you talk maybe a little bit about how we're handling that? Um, what kind of tasks we, might, we are handling and, and, and how we think about solving these you know, sing, single node background tasks? Yeah. Uh, so I have recently transitioned to... Um, so I guess we, we use two, two different ways. So um, the way we started was we use uh, something called Verk, which uses the sidekick process, or sidekick, I don't know, Redis protocol, I guess is what that is. Um, so it, it uses Redis as its like mem- storage for all the jobs. It looks exactly like sidekick to Redis or whatever, um, and pulls off a job, works on it, and says it's done, pulls it out of the queue, etc. cetera. Um, so the reason we went with that is because it's a like a known quantity to us. Um, we knew exactly how Sidekick worked because we've done plenty of projects with it. Um, so it's just one less thing to change when we transition to Elixir. I've recently started to become a lot more comfortable with you just turn on a Gen server somewhere in your in your supervision tree that is like that worker, um, or you can make it a pool of workers uh, and you just send messages to it. Though so that that. Gen server gets the the message to do some work, does some work, and is like out of the, like we're in a, a concurrent environment. It's its own little mini thread, um, and it can do whatever it wants and not like it impact the rest of the system. Um, it's in the in the background um, and whatnot. 
Okay, and so when people talk about Elixir being really good at concurrency, they're talking about you know both at the high level that we discussed earlier with like separate nodes working in a cluster, but also um, at this lower level of uh, like on the on the on the given node uh, having a lot li lots of libraries really that uh, provide these uh, background processing uh, primitives. Is that like a fair summation of what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's less less about libraries and more just the the language itself is built to be concurrent. Mm. Um, so it'll it'll utilize every uh, CPU core that you have, I think, by default. So um, yeah, it's it's just the way that the gen servers are all set up mm -hmm. um, and how the scheduler bounces between each one to try and give them a fair amount of of actual process time and and whatnot. So each each process is effectively a thread it's it's not but that's what you can sort of think of it as mm -hmm. as a single threaded application or like function whatever you want to module object whatever you want to call it <laughs> i guess right. but well so and i, and I want to get a little bit into the libraries dan you're the bo big boss here at smart logic and so like when i want to pull a new dependency into a project i usually check with you first before uh before i do that because you know you know, when you're working with other people, you want to get their feedback on dependencies you're pointing into projects. What libraries are we using here at Smart Logic that help us build Elixir applications very quickly and with a high degree of reliability? Sure. Well, you know, I, I'd say to start with, one of the, the things we kind of love about Elixir and the community is that we don't need a whole lot. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of primitives in the language that give us kind of the things that we need. Um, you know, everything Eric's talking about with gen servers and the OTP, it's, you know, those things are, are just there. And so we can do a lot of things without pulling in external dependencies. So in some regards, you know, Eric mentioned Verk, uh, you know, because we were used to using Sidekick and we wanted something that had that same pattern, uh, you know, to not make too many changes at once. We started using that, but you know, we may not necessarily reach for it uh, going forward because the primitives of the language give us the things we need. Um, you know, but there are certainly some fundamental components that we pull in, and um, you know, the big one being Phoenix, uh, you know, the web framework. Um, also, Ecto, which you know, for managing our Postgres databases and the repository pattern, uh, change sets, and being able to query and, and modify a database, Ecto is is phenomenal, and it's one of my favorite things about having switched to Elixir. We mentioned earlier Distillery to help us build our releases. Um, you know, there's a lot of community effort behind making Distillery even better, um, and it's had a lot of progress over the last couple of years. Um, and it's very, you've gotten a lot easier to work with, and really gives us what we need to build a nice binary release to run on a server. Bamboo from uh, you know the well-known Thoughtbot crew uh, is a great way for us to send uh, emails and template out emails. Has a lot of different adapters for the various email providers that our clients may or may not be using, um, or uh, transactional email servers that we prefer to use. Um, integrates really well there. Quantum uh, is a great way to schedule uh, tasks and basically just have a have one of your functions run at a given time. It kind of removes the need for an external cron state. Um, you certainly can accomplish some of these things just by having your supervisor spin up tasks and schedule various message deliveries and things like that. Um, but sometimes having that that known cron pattern is, is something you would want um, and building it right into your binary is easy with quantum. You know, almost any modern application has to deal with dates and times and time zones. Um, and the Timex uh, package is really great for that. 
Um, and then the other one I think we pull in pretty often is CashX, um, which gives you a really great pattern for defining caches when you're querying external APIs and you don't necessarily need to get fresh data every time. You can really do some good in-memory caching with very minimal uh, implementation code uh, using the CacheX package. Hmm. And all the libraries that you just mentioned are open source, reliable, community supported, regularly updated and maintained. Uh, That's all true, yeah. (laughs) For everything that I've mentioned, yes, that's absolutely true. Very cool. I love the open source world. So I want to ask, I want to stay in this vein of sort of uh, libraries, but I want to move more toward like the third-party services that we're using in production, uh, email, payment processing, that kind of thing. Eric, you're kind of our guy for uh, third-party API integration here. What, what, uh, you know, have you struggled with any of these integrations in the Elixir environment? What, what have you, what have you worked with? Uh, no, I, I don't think we've, we've struggled at all. Um, a lot of these, so like we, we use like Stripe, Square, um, Twilio, done some even SOAP stuff with MindBody. I think a lot of what we've we've done is just avoid looking for any kind of existing client, partially because Elixir is new enough that these things don't have one. But I've also kind of gone with the, the like a mentality of being more explicit and, and like using more primitives uh, that Elixir kind of pushes you towards. So we just have each each project just uses the straight HTTP API that these all have. We have HTTP Poison most of the time. Uh, another library uh, that's a HTTP client that like we have a, a module called Stripe. Uh, it has exactly the functions that we needed to do. <laughs> uh, it does exactly what we want and just calls directly their API. So that way we don't have to deal with uh, integration issues of like the Elixir Stripe client or the Square Stripe client, uh, if if they exist and like, oh, this works most of the time, most of the way, but it doesn't do exactly what we want. So Mm. now it does exactly what we want. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's been a great uh, change, I think in general. Right, Elixir makes it very easy for us to spin up those um, custom integration modules. Dan, do you have a story where Elixir has sort of saved the day in production? Anything, sure. Yeah, anything you could share there? Well, I mean, I think the biggest way the Elixir has saved the day in production is that it hasn't had any problems. Um, you know, and we just, things are all kind of quiet and things move along as they should, um, which, you know, maybe isn't a necessarily a language feature other than the fact that it is a stable production ready and reliable platform which is what you want right so i would say a lack of problems is certainly a production win um you know i I think the big thing that is elixir specific because of its underlying erlang core is the supervision trees and and the way processes are handled Um, and so you'll see that systems are architected in a way such that there's you know processes that handle talking to redis or processes that handle talking to the database and you know one thing that we'll see uh, kind of blip across the screen every once in a while is, uh, you know, errors from those systems when the external dependency goes down for maintenance or has a networking hiccup or things like that. Um, and the reality is that the system, uh, the way Elixir and its supervision trees work is it'll just kind of restart those processes and rebuild those pools and those the services become reavailable, you know, available to your code again without the entire system going down. So it's kind of like a, you know, a little bit of fault tolerance, a little bit of self-healing, um, and it's just kind of the way things are expected to work. You know, yes, we know that sometimes external dependencies 
don't work out exactly as they should, and the system's designed to uh, kind of recover and, and keep moving forward. And you can certainly take that same pattern and extend it into uh, a much more complicated and much more robust uh, way of doing things. And you know, we haven't really had that need directly, but we, it's great to know that it's there. It's part of the core, and we see it work, uh, you know, kind of day in and day out in in the very basic things that we're starting to do with it. Right, and ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, Eric. So, we, so okay. I've heard I've heard a couple times mentioned. This is a question that I have. I guess I, I've heard supervision trees mentioned a couple times. Are supervision trees rolled into OTP or is that an Erlang level thing? And Eric, maybe you could tell us what OTP is and if there are any cool OTP features that you've been using that you want to share. Yeah. So OTP is, um, I believe. I might be wrong on this, but I think Erlang and OTP are now the same thing. Like OTP is a standard library for Erlang. So that includes supervision trees, gen servers, uh, and like a whole bunch of stuff that you probably don't know about. <laughs> there's a pretty good, uh, there's actually a few talks, I think, on uh, YouTube from ElixirConf, uh, a few ElixirConfs that, ha- that kind of just show all of the stuff that is in uh, OTP. TP, so those might be a, a good thing to look out for as well. I guess the standard stuff that we use for OTP, supervision trees, gen servers, um, something called ETS, which is the Erlang term storage. So it's a local, really, really fast reads and writes for any kind of term you want to stick in into it. Mm. <clears throat> it's kind of like global memory storage. Uh, some other cool things, I, I've, I've done a bit with GenTCP, which is a way to, I think you, you can stand up a TCP server or be a TCP client, so you can just kind of connect to stuff. Other cool things, uh, Amnesia is part of the, the, the built-in uh, libraries. There's a... What, what is Amnesia? Just, Amnesia is a replicated database, sort of like Postgres, but inside of Erlang, I think is how you can think about it. There's a disk-based term storage as well called DETS, D-E-T-S. There's an SSH client server built in. There's like all kinds of cool stuff should you need to use them. Um, that just kind of shifts with, with OTP. So, Well, maybe one day we'll do a whole episode on cool OTP features. Uh, Dan, so I've got one more question for both of you. We'll start with Dan and then we'll let uh, Eric close it out. Dan, if you could give one tip to developers out there who are or you know maybe soon running Elixir in production, what would it be? Um, I would say, you know, kind of jump in um, and read the docs. You know, I think some of the places where we struggled a little bit early on was just like understanding how the system boots up or how distillery works and how to get our system D configuration just right so that we can, you know, monitor the right PID and, and know that things are up and running and restart things should anything go wrong, not that anything has gone wrong, um, you know, and just kind of have that good, like, server monitoring hygiene is probably where Elixir is the most different from what you've done in the past. Um, so that's where I would probably focus my attention. And the this good thing about Distillery having so much focus uh, from the community right now is that the documentation is getting better and it's uh, becoming a, a more and more robust tool with every uh, passing day um, or probably even passing hour. Um, so, you know, it's a friendly community. Dive in, read the docs, ask questions in the Elixir forum or in the uh, Elixir Lang Slack. Um, you'll get the help that you need and, and just go for it would be my, uh, my advice. Awesome. Eric, same question. 
Yeah, so kind of uh, continuing with, with that is, is to, ju- <clears throat> to dive in and, and figure out exactly how to do a distillery, distillery release um, and look into their config providers, specifically the config providers. Being able to spin up on Heroku with just mixphx.server is pretty cool, um, but being able to like drastically level up and make an, an like, actual Elixir release uh, is a pretty amazing thing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Dan Ivovich, Eric Ostrich, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And once again, this has been a production of Smart Software with Smart Logic, talking about Elixir in production. Join us for our next episode for more conversations on Elixir in production. Thank you. Have a great day.